Hi, welcome to the Dewey Decimal Podcast. I'm your host, Phil Moorhart, Associate Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association. Now, before we get started on episode three, I just wanted to give another big thanks to you, our listeners, for the incredible reception that you've given us so far. Um, you're tuning in from all corners of the library world and beyond, and uh, really from all corners of the globe. So thank you. Thanks for listening, folks. It really means a lot to us. The Andrew Carnegie Medals for Excellence in Fiction and Nonfiction are one of the top prizes in the literary world. Co-sponsored by Booklist and RUSA, and funded in part by a grant from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, the Carnegie Medals were established in 2012 to recognize the best fiction and nonfiction books for adult readers published in the U.S. during the previous year. The awards are presented at ALA Annual during a ceremony that's happening this year on Saturday, June 25th in Orlando, Florida. So for those of you who are attending ALA Annual this year right now as we speak, please head over to the awards ceremony on Saturday night. It's always really a good time. This year's Carnegie Medals were awarded to two fine books, The Sympathizer, a novel by Viet Thanh Nguyen, and Hold Still, a nonfiction memoir by Sally Mann. Today on Dewey Decibel, we talk with Viet about The Sympathizer, his excellent dark spy thriller set in the aftermath of the Vietnam War. It was a really awesome conversation. And we also speak with Nancy Pearl, the celebrated librarian, author, and literary critic. Nancy has sat on the selection committee for the uh, Carnegie Medal since its inception in 2012, and she gives us an exclusive behind-the-scenes look at how the, uh, the winners are selected. You really do not want to miss this episode. But first, the Crowley Company is unique a blend of manufacturer, distributor, and service bureau that understands the complexities of archival preservation and records management from every angle. And they would like to congratulate Viet Thanh Nguyen and Sally Mann on their 2016 Andrew Carnegie Medals for Excellence. An award winner in its own right with nearly 10 modern library awards for archival and patron uh, library scanners, Crowley applauds the effort it takes to be on top in a crowded field of worthy competitors. For more information about the scan systems and services that can help uh, preserve your research and collections, visit thecrowleycompany.com. Viet Thanh Nguyen is an associate professor of English and American Studies and Ethnicity at uh, University of Southern California. His novel, The Sympathizer, was the winner of the 2016 Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Fiction. It also won the 2016 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. These are absolutely incredible accolades for a debut novel. Viet's book takes the form of a confessional, told by half-Vietnamese, half-French communist agent in the years following the Vietnam War, years that saw him flee Saigon for exile in Los Angeles. It's really a, a powerful work, equally dark and funny, and both damning and hopeful about man's place in this world. Now, Viet spoke with us recently about the book, how his life influenced his work, American media depictions of the Vietnam War, and much, much more. Congrats on winning the uh, the Carnegie Medal and the Pulitzer Prize. That's awesome for uh, for a debut novel. Yeah, well, yeah, it feels pretty good, I have to say. Yeah. Um, no, no, the book itself, The Sympathizer, um, it's a confessional. It's written by it's a, he's a North Vietnamese undercover agent. Um, he's working in South Vietnam, but he comes to Los Angeles after the Vietnam War, after the fall of Saigon. Um, now, your family came to the U.S. in much the same manner at the same time in 1974. You were four. Um, now, I guess my question or questions are to, 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 to start is what was your inspiration for the book and um, from what part of your personal biography did you use in the story and I guess how did you merge that into a spy thriller and why did you use the spy thriller genre to tell such a personal story? Okay, just one correction. We came in 1975. 75. Uh, oh, I have 75 yeah. written right here, but I was looking at four. <laughs> okay, no problem. 
Um, so, you know, the, when my agent said that I had to write a novel, I mean, the first thing that came to my mind was a spy novel. And the inspiration for that was that I had done a lot of reading in the history of the Vietnam War and learned that there actually really were communist spies who were uh, really deeply embedded in the South Vietnamese hierarchy up into the very highest levels. And it seemed to me that, that, that using that as, uh, as a source material would be, would be great because I wanted to write a novel that would be entertaining in addition to doing other kinds of literary and, and political things. And I'd always been and remain a big fan of um, the spy novel and related, it's related genres in, in the thriller and, and uh, hard-boiled uh, detective fiction. And the spy novel also, you know, by its nature, really would allow me, be, you know, besides telling the entertaining story, to also touch on questions of politics and history as well, which were always really a central concern for me. And it's not an autobiographical novel, but what I did take from my own life for this spy was that when I was growing up in um, San Jose, California, as a refugee, I always felt a sense of duality of not belonging, no matter where I happened to be, whether that was in my parents' house or whether it was outside. So that when I was in my parents' house, I felt like I was an American spying on them. And when I was outside in the rest of the world, I felt like I was a Vietnamese person spying on Americans. So it was just a matter of taking this this feeling and exaggerating it and making it into a much more interesting uh, experience through the figure of a spy uh, that led to the novel. There is this duality throughout the book. I mean, the the, the main character he's half Vietnamese, half French. He's working for working for the South, but he's also working for the North. Even within a social group, the personal and public life, he he embrace he kind of embraces this dichotomy. Allows some access to a lot of different realms, but it gives him a little bit of anonymity. Um, he has a unique you know, perspective on all that. He has this droll humor. Um, I guess that's where the name of the book comes from. He sympathizes for both sides. Um, now, you, you mentioned you, you, you drew a little bit of him from you as a child, um, but where else did he come from? Like, what, um, wh He's such a unique character. What, um, where, where did he birth from? Well, I thought of him as a bad James Bond, you know, that uh, he would, you know, he would do some of these spy-like things and, you know, he would be a womanizer and, and, a, and a drinker of various things besides martinis, but he would, he would do them in a, in a much uh, less debonair fashion than James Bond would, even if in his own mind he had this image of himself as being um, much more handsome and, and capable than he probably actually is. Uh, but I think, you know, he grows out of a, a tradition of, of these masculine anti-heroic figures that I've read in these genres of the spy, of the spy novel, of the detective novel, of hard-boiled fiction, and of the, of stories of war-weary veterans who are going to tell you their life story at the bar. Um, so he was supposed to, he was supposed to fit into a, a certain, a certain sort of recognizably masculine set of genres. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, he would be the, the key difference. I think would be that he was also going to be someone who was very politically conscious, and someone who was a bastard, right? uh, someone of a mixed race uh, background. But that would be that would render him into not simply a you know, a bastard in, in, the, in that sense of, 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 of mixed race identity, but someone who is uh, both spit upon by other people, but also was going to be capable of some terrible behavior himself. Cinema plays a large part of this film. And um, I guess 
it plays into the larger theme is of uh, of how the, the book itself is really the story to, story of the Vietnamese post-war experience. You have a very specific depiction of the war itself, the, evacu the evacuation of Saigon, the diaspora and the refugee experience here in the U.S., and specifically how the the war is um, viewed by Americans and Vietnamese, uh, particularly in pop culture like film. Um, you almost never see the war from the Vietnamese perspective in cinema and pop culture. You have Apocalypse Now, Platoon, Good Morning Vietnam, Full Metal Jacket. And um, the character in the book goes to work for this really arrogant filmmaker, uh, Francis Ford Coppola-like character. Um, now, was that a goal from the outset as you wrote your book, uh, to kind of give a voice to those, to those perspectives that have been overlooked and exploited by the westernized mass media depiction of the war, kind of to, to right the wrongs? I think that was definitely true. I mean, when I was growing up in, in San Jose, I was, I was certainly watching a lot of Hollywood Vietnam War movies, in addition to simply watching a lot of Hollywood movies and reading a lot of American literature. And certainly what I felt was that whether we were speaking of the Vietnam War or whether we were speaking of just the presence of Asians or Asian Americans in general, you know, these populations that I identified with, the Vietnamese and, and Asian Americans, has been erased or silenced in uh, American media. And I felt that obviously, you know, one way that I could construe this novel is that it's meant to um, tell the story of, of many people who had been silenced in American stories about the Vietnam War. And another way to construe the novel is that it, in addition to telling these stories, would itself be a, a kind of revenge or a critique about American ways of storytelling in cinema, uh, but also in other other ways as well. Now, now those the, those films that um, you're getting, I guess, revenge upon, um, Apocalypse Now, et cetera. What what are your opinions of those films? Well, I mean, I, I like many of them. I mean, the films like Apocalypse Now, Full Metal Jacket, uh, Platoon, Coming Home, and then a number of others. I think that they're they range from being very good to great works of art. And at the same time, it's possible to enjoy these films, but also feel ambivalent about them because mm -hmm. my my place in these films or in relationship to these films is probably not as their ideal viewer. I mean, their ideal viewer is probably an American or anybody who's not Vietnamese, you know, because to be a Vietnamese person watching these movies is to be put into an ambivalent uh, situation because we're what the movie is not about. The movie is about American soldiers or, or other Americans and their relationship to the war. But the Vietnamese are the silent backdrop, or the people who are being killed or wounded or spoken over, and so on. And so that was the tension that I could, you know, respect and enjoy these these films as works of art, and yet I couldn't get away from my worldly relationship to them as a Vietnamese person. And I thought it would be possible to both invoke them, but also be really critical of them at the same time. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, what was the the research process like for this book? Um, uh, did you return to Vietnam to and, and how and do you have you returned to Vietnam often since since you left and in, 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 in the research process of the book or in the writing of the book did you return to Vietnam? Well, I am also a scholar, so I was was also working on a, on a scholarly book about the Vietnam War in memory, and that took me back to Vietnam five or six times over the course of a of a decade, and I spent about a year in Vietnam altogether. And although I wasn't really thinking about the novel uh, when I was doing that research, nevertheless, all those trips to Vietnam and encounters with Vietnamese people and all that kind of stuff um, made its way, filtered its way into into the novel. Um, but there was specific kinds of research that I did carry out for the novel itself. You know, uh, I had to do a lot of research into the fall of Saigon in order to get the first 50 pages of the book correct because I was interested in 
trying to follow the fall of Saigon first by the month, then by the week, then by the day, and then literally by minute by minute by the end of that opening section on the fall of Saigon. Mm-hmm. And then I also did a lot of research about um, Apocalypse Now because although that section in the book that deals with the making of this Hollywood war movie is in general about all Hollywood war, Vietnam war films, um, it's also obviously a satire of Apocalypse Now. And I wanted to learn as much as I could about the making of that movie. And, and, and one of the things that I discovered along the way was there were things that happened or were rumored to have happened on that set that I could never have possibly imagined for myself. Um, but, but in general, there wasn't a lot of direct research that I did about, the, about this uh, for this novel, um, primarily because I'd spent 30 years as a young child and a young man reading and watching a lot of stuff about the Vietnam War. And so by the time I came around to writing this book, I felt like I'd already done much of that research uh, that was needed. Oh, yeah. Um now, in your opinion, how has um, since the end of the books, since the end of the synthesizer, synthesizer in 1977, um, how has Vietnam changed? Well, Vietnam has changed pretty radically. It's in 1977, it was a very poor country, war-torn country. It was the victim of American policies, but also of the Communist Party's own policies on economics and on the persecution of its enemies and the ethnic Chinese. That really led to a a debilitated country in the 1980s. Uh, but with the reopening of Vietnam to the West in 1986, and then with reestablishment of ties to the U.S. in 1994 and 1995, what's really happened is that Vietnam has become a capitalist country. Mm-hmm. It's a communist country in name only. It's ruled by the Communist Party, but in practice, everything about the country is capitalist. Um, and that means that the, you know it, it looks like a very different place. It feels like a very different place. Everything's determined by by profit, um, and the young, both the younger and the older generations are really driven by this orientation towards um, self-interest and for making lives for themselves, which you really can't blame them for, given the deprivation that was entailed by living under war conditions for for decades. Uh, but it's but it's a society in which there's a lot of contradictions. You know, again, uh, they want to make a lot of money, but they're also interested in still interesting questions of justice and equality. Still interested in questions of independence um, from both, um, from primarily from China at this point. So it's a country that is in a lot of um, flux right now as it tries to figure out what its future is going to be. Now, um, you kind of address this in the in the book some um, about the re- different the regional differences between the North and the South. Then um, are these still very distinct now, or is, um, has that changed as well over the course of um, the past few decades? So the regional distinctions in the country between North, Central, and South preexisted the Vietnam War. Um, they, they, were, they were sort of already present in the country for a long time, and they were exacerbated by French colonization that officially broke up the country into three parts. And even today, you know, even with the end of the Vietnam War, those divisions still exist. I mean, obviously they're not divisions that, that are societal as they had been, but they're divisions that the Vietnamese people are cognizant of when they say Northerners have certain kinds of characteristics and so do Central people and Southerners. And still, when Vietnamese people say that, they're, 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 the, the memory of the war still is a factor because, you know, in the South, there's a lot of anti-Northern bias because after the war, a lot of Northerners came south to take advantage of the fact that they were victorious. And uh, a lot of Southerners still have some resentment over those things. And then, you know, regional stereotypes that people have of each other, just as in the United States we have regional stereotypes of each other, those still exist as well. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something I think that's that's very interesting from reading the book, and I think it's it's um, indicative probably of of the westernized American depiction or or understanding of the Vietnamese War is that um, as as read in the book, um, it is more of a civil war as opposed to. Americans probably think of it as uh, we, we see it as our role in it. Um, is that how you perceive it? it? It was a civil war, and the Americans were kind of extras in it. I think it was, you know, both a revolutionary war on the part of those people, the communists and the nationalists, who wanted to uh, unify and to liberate the country, and simultaneously a civil war because, you know, there was North against South, and in the South there was communists against anti-communists, and so on. So it's both those things at the same time. And I do think that the Americans have, have been considered by the Vietnamese as the outsiders in that war. That's why um, in the years afterwards, it's been easier for the victorious Vietnamese people and government to reconcile with the United States and with Americans than it has been for those same victorious Vietnamese to reconcile with the defeated Vietnamese. Mm. So that's why when Americans go to Vietnam or go back to Vietnam, as the case might be, the common refrain is, well, we were afraid of what the Vietnamese people would think of us, but we're so surprised that they seem to be, be very friendly and want to make peace. And that generally is true. But if you are uh, a Vietnamese abroad um, who goes back to Vietnam, especially of the older generation, it's a much more fraught return. Even for me, it was, it was, it was kind of a challenging return, simply because the um, political, emotional, financial impact of the war and the division and, and the conflicts and so on um, have left a deep legacy among Vietnamese people. And it's harder for them to forget those legacies when it comes to um, um, people they consider to be a part of the Vietnamese family. I think that's all we have time for today, Viet. Uh, thanks so much for, for speaking with me today. And again, congrats on winning the Carnegie Medal and the Pulitzer Prize. Thanks, Bill. Look forward to meeting the ALA people uh, in a couple of weeks. Yes, well, well um, I'll be there in Orlando as well, and uh, I'll be sure to find you. <laughs> Great, looking forward to it. Thanks once again to Viet Thanh Nguyen for speaking with us today. His Carnegie Medal Award-winning book, The Sympathizer, is published by Grove Atlantic. I really cannot recommend it enough. Looking for fun and inexpensive summer reading giveaways? Try Buttons. Yes, you heard me, Buttons. Based in Chicago, the Busy Beaver Button Company is your source for high-quality custom buttons. Now, trust me, people. Busy Beaver is the real deal. They crafted some really awesome buttons for the Dewey Decimal Podcast, and they're they're lovely. Uh, for those at ALA Annual in Orlando right now, you can find these buttons in the Membership Lounge. Grab one. Wear it proudly. Tell your friends and colleagues about Busy Beaver. Do it. Uh, check them out at busybeaver.net, or you can give them a call, 773-645-3359. Place an order. Use the library code LIBRARY, all caps, at checkout for 10% off your order. That's the deal. Do it. Nancy Pearl is a Library World superstar, a librarian, best-selling author, literary critic, and former executive director of the Washington Center for the Book at Seattle Public Library. She's also the host of Book Lust with Nancy Pearl on, on the Seattle Channel, and uh, she's a regular commentator about books on NPR's Morning Edition, and uh, for NPR affiliates KUOW in Seattle and KWGS in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Nancy has served on the Carnegie Medal Nominating Committee since the award's inception in 2012. And this year, she served as the uh, chair of the committee. We chatted with Nancy recently about what goes on behind the scenes on the Carnegie front, and she gave us a fascinating look at what goes into selecting 
the winners each year. Thanks so much uh, for speaking with us today, Nancy. I guess the overarching question is, how do you choose the winners each year? (laughs) But um, I guess it's kind of a question filled with so many different sub-questions. So I guess the best place to start is to – let's talk a bit about the selection committee itself. Can you tell me and our listeners, um, I guess, a bit more about the committee, how many people sit on it? Because you've you've been on the committee since its its inception (laughs) in 2012. So what what keeps you coming back? And um, just tell us a little bit more about it. Well, the committee is made up of uh, librarians, both public uh, public library librarians and librarians who work in um, academia. Um, And in recent years, I think we started three years ago, we've added a bookseller to the mix, which which is, I think, uh, adds a different kind of voice to the committee. Um, The reason I keep coming back uh, is that it's a chance for me not only to um, to read books that I might or might not ordinarily pick up in the kind of normal course of my reading, but also to have a chance to talk about them with other um, devoted readers that it's always um, – Except when it turns out to be very frustrating when a book that you're really excited about, nobody else is excited about it. That's Mm -hmm. not good. Um, But it's really always interesting uh, to hear other people's thoughts about the book, and and the discussions are really um, some of the best part of being on the the Carnegie Committee. So I I actually should modify that. Half the committee are librarians, and the other half are um, book lust, book lust, book list editors. Okay. Um, so there's there's that good mixture too. So does each member contribute uh, a set number of of titles to consider each each year? It's not it's not that formal. Um, what we do is um, what things changed last year because we had to ch- we changed the timing of the award to make it earlier and and therefore more relevant. Um, Mm -hmm. We wanted the the Carnegie Medals to be announced about the same time that the National Book Award and the other big big awards were announced. Um, So really, in the beginning, we were relying on the finalists, the the notable books finalists, uh, notable books, the other um, ALA committee, RUSA committee. Um, and also the book list, top books of the year. And then we, we put those two lists together and chose the final, the finalists, the three finalists, and then the eventual winner from that list. Now, um, it's, it's more that if, if a committee member has a suggestion for a book that they would like to be considered for the award, um, we can, and we get those books and read them, and they're part of the of the mix. Selecting the finalists and the eventual winners is it is it a smooth process? I guess does it does it get contentious? Is there any heated debate, um, compromise? Um, I guess uh, what what's that process like of actually choosing? Because I'm sure there's there's some strong advocates on on for every book. Yes. So right. Well, all the times that I've been, um, you know, I think the six. Of the of the of the times that I've been involved um, and on the committee, the, the discussions have been um, heated but never rancorous. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's always the sense that if you think a book is just terrific, you can't understand why nobody else or why someone else doesn't agree with you. Mm-hmm. Um, but but for, and so we've always we've always um, had um, voting. 
that no one else saw. So it was it was you you voted and sent it to the chair of the committee, and then the votes were tallied, and and whoever got the most votes was the winner. Last year, um, it, it was I, it was it was um, a, a consensus certainly developed um, about who 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 the committee was leaning toward. I do remember. Um, because I was the person who suggested the sympathizer because I, I you know, had read it and, and thought, wow, this is an award winner. This is a really important book. And when I talked about it um, in one of our uh, phone calls with the rest of the committee, I remember that Ike Pulver, who um, was on the committee, said to me, said to the group, he said, oh, Nancy likes any book about Vietnam, hmm. um, which, which looking back I think is probably true. You know, the, the interesting thing is when you're when you're picking an award winner, there are a lot of books that you like that you really. My experience has been there are a lot of books that I really like. There are a lot of books that I've really enjoyed reading, but there's something about a there's something about that particular book or or a particular book that rises above the the oh this is a good book um this is a book i really enjoyed to a book oh this is an important book this is a book that we really want to recognize for its for its for its literariness if you will and you know that i mean you you kind of get a feeling right away i i remember reading hold still and just and i had not even wanted to read that book particularly because I had my own feelings about um, the author's experience, which she talks about in the book, of, of taking uh, pictures of her children when they were young. And, you know, I had my own feelings about that, and I wasn't necessarily a fan, but I started reading that book, and I just was blown away by how beautifully written it was, how um, just just how interesting it was to read about this woman's life told by the woman herself. Now, um, when does the, the work begin on selecting the, the shortlist and the finalist? How long does it take um, to, to, to narrow down that field? Last year, what we did was choose the shortlist early in the fall, um, in September, narrow it down. Well, actually, we, we chose what we, what we called the long list um, in September. So those were um, I think 25 books each. I'm not sure about that number, but a good a good number. And then we voted on those books um, early in November. So and, and to choose the three finalists. And then the way it worked last year, as we were choosing the three finalists, it became very clear who the winners would be. So we knew very early on. But the difficulty. Um, the, dif the difficulty for the judges then is that by September, we need to read all the important books that are coming out through December. Mm -hmm. So you're really reading you're really reading ahead a lot. You um you touched on this a bit already, but I wanted to talk a bit about the sympathizer and uh, and hold still. What was it about? If you can just encapsulate it very briefly, what was it about each of these titles that really spoke to you and the committee? Um, that, that what, what made them rise to the top? Well, I, I think the, the thing about the sympathizer is, for both of them, it's the quality of the writing 
um, for me and I think for many of the judges, that is the most, you know, that's the most important thing, how well written it is. And then maybe the second most important thing is, is, is the, the three-dimensionality of the characters. And I, I, I know for, for me, reading The Sympathizer, and I have read many novels and nonfiction about Vietnam because I'm interested in that, in that period. Um, I, I had never read a book like this before. It, it, it combined, it, it was, it was humorous. It was tragic. It was uh, page turning. It was difficult to read. And it was just such an achievement of, of this, of this author of whom none of us had heard. You know, it was just pretty darn amazing. And, and for Hold Still, really, it was it was the same qualities I think that brought that book to everyone's attention: the humanity of the author, um, the way she put words together, the way she told stories, the way she brought incidents um, from her life alive for the reader, and and that we kind of felt we we got to know her. Now, now looking forward, um, are you um, will you be sitting on the um the committee for yes. the the next year. Uh, is there yes. is there are there any um, any titles or any books that um, that are jumping out at you already? Well, um, uh, one is Chris Cleve's, um book called Everyone Brave Is Forgiven, um, which I thought was absolutely wonderful. Um, I think that probably is my favorite book. So far, um, but then we talk on the committee a lot about whether it's Carnegie worthy or not, and, and of course that's such a subjective. It seems as though that would be very subjective, but in fact, in my experience of being on the committee, it, we tend to agree that that there is something that lifts itself above that. So I'm, I'm just kind of reading um, reading a lot. Uh, and thinking um, as I'm reading about the quality of those books. Um, thank you so much, Nancy, for speaking with us today. I, I, I appreciate it greatly, and as do our listeners. Good, good. Well, I, I enjoy talking to you. Thanks once again to Nancy Pearl for speaking with us today. We look forward to seeing what she and the rest of the Carnegie Nominating Committee have in store for us next year. Need to know books? Then you need Booklist, the book review magazine of the American Library Association. Considered an essential collection development and reader's advisory tool for more than 100 years, Booklist publishes nearly 700 reviews every month of new books and audiobooks across all subjects and genres. Check out BooklistOnline.com and the Booklist Reader for feature articles and lists that make doing your job easier and more fun. Well, that wraps another edition of the Dewey Decimal Podcast. Thanks again to Viet Thanh Nguyen and Nancy Pearl for speaking with us today about the Carnegie Medals. Uh, it was awesome conversations, as always. And uh, we'll see you next month when we uh, wrap up all the wonderful things that have happened at ALA Annual Conference in Orlando, Florida. We'll see you then. You know, there's always the sense that if you think a book is just terrific, you can't understand why nobody else or why someone else doesn't agree with you. 